There's still a lot of opportunity in building products that are tightly focused on narrow niches that may on the surface seem a little bit too narrow, but in practice, you can go really deep on. Welcome to Research Radio, the official podcast of Contrary Research. Contrary Research is the best starting place to understand any private tech company. In each episode, we dive deep into the most important conversations and companies in technology. This show is your first step to understanding any startup. I'm your host, Kyle Harrison, general partner at Contrary. For more info and to read our full research reports, visit research.contrary.com. Myself, guests, and Contrary may have financial interest in the companies discussed. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as investment advice. As always, do your own research before making any financial decisions. On today's episode, we're talking about Lithic. Lithic provides an API-based platform for card issuing and payment processing. It allows businesses to create and manage their own debit or credit card programs, and then integrate those card services directly into their app or user experience. And this lets companies offer customized payment solutions that are pretty tailored to the specific needs that they have or their ideal customer experience dictates. Now, all sorts of businesses could benefit from custom card solutions. And this can be anything from a fintech startup looking to launch digital wallets or personalized credit cards. It can be an e-commerce site building branded payment cards or loyalty programs, or a gig economy platform trying to simplify the payment process for its contractors. Now, that might sound simple enough, but it's really not. Before Lithic creating and managing debit or credit card programs, it was a pretty complex and time-consuming process. Usually, it involved navigating a maze of banking regulations, establishing partnerships with big lumbering financial institutions, and dealing with intricate systems, most of which were built well into the last century. So to help us understand how Lithic is trying to revolutionize this infrastructure and how it works as a business, we're joined by co-founder and CEO, Bo Jang. Hope you enjoy our chat. All right, Bo, thank you so much for joining me. I'm excited to do this. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to kind of get to unpack this space with you because I think you guys sit at a really interesting place in the market where we've seen a ton of innovation in fintech, but I think that you sit in a sort of component of fintech that we haven't seen as much innovation in, which I think is pretty exciting. We'll get to unpack a lot of that. But before we dive into some of the specifics, where I love to start, we love to just get kind of the elevator pitch from you. So in, in simplest terms, what is Lithic and what do you guys do? For sure. So Lithic is a payments infrastructure that helps fintech companies and software companies more broadly issue prepaid debit and credit cards. So Visa MasterCards, primarily focused in the US and uh, we're largely a developer focused uh, API offering. And maybe to unpack this kind of what I was talking about as far as you think about the broader payment stack, if you assume somebody knows fairly little about the modern financial ecosystem outside of, you know, they are consumers and they are using spend or at their businesses, they have expense accounts or whatever. Walk me through kind of how you think about the payment stack from acquiring to issuing and also help me understand kind of where a lot of the problems maybe have been somewhat solved or where most of the solutions have been and also kind of where the opportunity exists in that stack. It's a good question. So if you think about it, if you take your card to a coffee shop and swipe it or tap it at a terminal, that oftentimes goes from an acquiring processor all the way to one of the card networks, you know, Visa, MasterCard, Amex. And then they often route that over 
to an issuer processor to respond to the transaction, to you know check out balances, fraud, all, run those rules, and then the message gets routed back all the way to the acquirer. And it all happens in you know, a matter of seconds. So to you, it's like an instant transaction, it seems like. But on the back end, it's going through all these pipes. If you look at where we as an industry have focused over the past 10, 15 years, I would say that there's been a tremendous amount of innovation on the acquiring side. You've seen really great companies like Square, Stripe, Adyen, Checkout, as well as kind of many smaller but equally exciting fast-growing companies being built on the acquiring side, making it basically easier for SMB merchants, websites, startups, SaaS companies to accept payments. That's been a much needed area for innovation. But I'd say like a lot of the the low-hanging fruit in that segment has been pretty picked out. We focus much more on the issuing side of things, uh, actually exclusively on the issuing side. We provide the technology that actually powers the card and is responding to the transaction and helping companies decide on, hey, should I approve? Should I reject that transaction in real time? So when you look at like the landscape on the issuing side that we focus on, most of the companies that control payment flow uh, on the issuing side were largely built multiple decades ago. Some of them before the internet was a thing, and the vast majority of them before you know the iPhone was invented. And so when you look at kind of the opportunity set, I'm personally biased, but I think there's a lot more room for growth, opportunity, TAM expansion on sort of that issuing side and kind of replacing that infrastructure that was built, you know, 30 plus years ago. I don't want to get to the issuing side, and that's kind of the meat of the conversation. But as I think about also this sort of payment stack that exists, one of the things that I think is just a really interesting thing to unbundle is look at card networks, right? You mentioned MasterCard, Visa, kind of everybody's familiar with those. It feels like they are kind of the pillars of the payment stack that are basically untouchable, like they're kind of irreplaceable. Help me understand like why that is like, how do they, why do they fill such a central role? And do you think there will ever be a point where it makes sense to innovate at that layer or sort of, it makes the most sense to kind of build up on either side of the transaction? There's two parts to that answer. You know, first of all, like when you look at why these companies are so enduring and why they're such good businesses, that just kind of comes down to the power of like being a network. They're very enduring businesses. That's sort of to explain like the why. I think it's just sort of by nature, like the network is self-sustaining, it's expanding, they're constantly innovating. When you look at like if it ever makes sense to, I think it seems like from, you know, if you're top down, like market landscape opportunity, it may feel like there's a massive opportunity there. But if you look at it from the perspective of like, what's the job to be done? What are you doing better? What's the customer pain that you're solving? It's not that clear to me that there's like quite that level of opportunity. You know, in general, like if you look at payments across the world today, it's pretty magical that I can take my, you know, credit card and spend it, you know, anywhere around the world and money just to me, at least from a consumer perspective, just moves magically out of my bank account into the that of the seller. And, you know, it just happens, right? And I also get like, you know, fantastic purchase protection, rewards, whatever it may be. I think a lot of the opportunities that actually exist outside of card rails where it's like, hey, like, if you've ever tried to send an international wire, it is like painful. You have to like designate sometimes like an intermediary bank. You sometimes have to like call the end receiving bank to be like, hey, like, did you get the wire? 
which is like kind of daunting if you're like wiring or moving like a reasonably large amount of money. It's like, hey, like I feel like we should have solved this, right? So in my mind, actually, a lot of the operating set is around like how do we actually convert sort of non-card transactions over to card rails where like the model actually like works quite well from a customer perspective. Definitely when you think about the the amount of money traveling through what feels like very archaic systems, it can definitely make you nervous. Every time I wire money, I panic. Like I think that I'm, I have to check every number and kind of freak out. And so obviously there's a lot of, a lot of room for improvement. So then stepping into the issuing side, you're talking about where there is a lot of this opportunity. You've touched on a few things, things like TAM expansion that I want to unpack. But the first thing is just in, in sort of simplest terms, when you think about this piece of that, of that payment flow, so you sort of have whether, you know, this, the client that has an account or whatever or has a card, the processor and then sort of the sponsor bank or whatever, like that's a kind of traditional way that you think about the issuing side of the equation. Where exactly do you guys fit in? Are there partners that you use to satisfy some of these components? And how much of that kind of customer experience are you taking on? That's uh, spot on. So in order to issue a card, basic components you need are obviously a card network partner, a sponsor bank, and a short processor. Then there's kind of this role of program manager, which can be a fintech company, or it can be the processor, oftentimes, or it can even be the bank. Typically, the role that we play the most is we play that processor role. So we're the technology that helps process the transactions, helps with the ledgering if needed, interfaces with the card manufacturer, spits out the reporting for the bank, helps with reconciliation. We provide that sort of glue and plumbing layer. We will, in a limited set of use cases, also play the program manager role. We take on sort of compliance obligations as well as kind of other um, oversight obligations. Ultimately, that's the responsibility of the sponsor bank, but sometimes we will kind of play a supporting role in that and be responsible for the, uh, the operational pieces of that. But as a rule, we only operate kind of at the API layer. So the user experience, the customer service, interfacing with customers, like we leave that to the fintech companies. But I would say kind of to just take it back, where we really excel is kind of as that like direct to the metal um, issuer processor uh, for kind of mid-market companies, at least. And on the banking side, is there a specific sort of relationship or partnership that you bring or are when you have the fintech who's kind of managing that client facing relationship, do they have a banking partner that they like to use or how does that work on the banking side? On the banking side, we at this point work with close to a dozen banks. Our primary mode of operation is just as the processor. And so that's kind of the vast majority of those relationships where we're the processor and we have reporting set up. We have what the bank needs. And if you're a fintech company and you come to us, we can say, hey, here are the banks that we work with. We're also happy to work with your bank if you want to bring your own bank. But here's what we have ready to go. One of the benefits of being a processor is like it's relatively easy for us to stand up those new banking relationships because it's oftentimes like having the reporting, having the due diligence, third-party due diligence for the bank on hand and ready and getting integrated is usually a relatively quick process for us. You sit at a very interesting place where you not only get to see how some of the best fintechs do it, but also you get to see some of the the banks you're working with and the pros and cons there. I'm curious, are there specific banks? I don't know if you have to cite names or throw shade, but when you think about specific types of banks, are there 
quote unquote, like new age banks or banks that are built to work closely with fintechs that you think very highly of and you work a lot with? Are there legacy banks that maybe are harder to work with? Or what does the banking ecosystem look like in terms of the sponsor banks you've seen out there? It's sort of on a spectrum, right? You have banks that have been in this space for a number of years and have actually really made these deep investments in process, in technology, in kind of like streamlining and scaling their offering as a sponsor bank to keep up with like enormous scale. And that's really cool to see. These banks have essentially become like technology companies. Now, one of the drawbacks is like, if you don't kind of maintain the investment in the stack, you do run the risk of becoming more of a legacy player. You've got to upgrade your data store, your reporting, how you work with fintechs, right? Like we're now moving from like batch files to real time. And you've got to be able to either ingest APIs or have APIs that ideally like we can pipe data to in real time, right? And so I think there's a challenge there. But what's been really heartening for me is like some bank partners have really kind of invested over, you know, a decade in, in kind of building uh, good processes that you know may need an update, but like are, are fundamentally sound. I think you also see like kind of a new category of banks that were acquired for the specific purpose of like sponsor banking or partner banking. Those are like really, really cool opportunities. Like I think... A number of folks have done that, and we think super highly of the teams there. They're really well positioned. They understand technology and product. And I think in some ways, there's the TAM is big enough, but like it is interesting to see, like, hey, like, do the incumbent folks that are in the space like innovate quickly enough, or do the the sort of newer folks like get distribution fast enough and scale fast enough? Right. Sort of personally bullish on on both, at least both both categories. The third category is like you have a lot of these new banks or smaller community banks that are getting into sponsor banking. And I think a lot of them are kind of drawn by the opportunity for like, you know, diversified revenue, increasing deposits, you know, whatever it may be. I would say that category is more of a mixed bag in my mind. I think if you know what you're doing, you pick the right partners, it is a very lucrative business to be in. But I think the challenge you run into is, if you scale up too quickly, you take on too much risk, you kind of risk blowing up your both your book of business, getting in regulatory hot water, as well as um, damaging or setting back a bunch of fintech customers uh, who may not be directly responsible even for, for uh, some of the missteps. So I think that's one where you just kind of have to be super thoughtful as a fintech company around like partner selection and like that's sort of, I, I would say, like the theme of the next couple of quarters or even years in my mind around like the importance of that, like uh, vendor selection or partner selection. Well, I also imagine that is something that your customers kind of value having a partner like you for, where it's like not only are they not having to build all of the really complicated infrastructure, but there's also a level of expertise so they can say, hey, you guys are working with, we're, we have to pick one bank. You guys are working with way more banks than we're ever going to have to evaluate we'll trust you if you tell us these are some of the best ones to work with. Is that fair to say? We definitely play a role in kind of guiding folks towards banks that are the right bank for their use case. The requirements of like a bank that does credit versus one that does consumer versus one like different banks really spike on different uh, aspects. 
So even kind of risk aside, we do kind of try to match make a little bit and say, hey, like, you know, this bank does a lot of credit, for example, or this bank does a lot of commercial. This one does, you know, a lot of ACH volume or whatever it may be that your your specific program needs. We try to kind of guide folks so, so that there's the right fit and there's expertise at the bank level. You mentioned this idea of like TAM expansion, right? By sort of innovating in the issuing side, we can expand the TAM. Understanding kind of like the status quo and then how things are changing. When you act as that processor, are the sort of competitors that you're sort of replacing, is that like the FISERVs and FISs of the world? Or are there other folks you're most often kind of taking the role of? Or how do you fit into that that status quo ecosystem? It's a mix of customers uh, or a mix of other providers. But I would say the use cases that are like most exciting for us tend to be kind of these net new use cases. It's not the majority of our revenue, for sure. The majority of our revenue is like kind of mid-market, scaled, sophisticated fintech companies that want to kind of do have a lot more control over their stack. But like what's exciting to us is like kind of the ability to kind of lower the barrier to entry in a thoughtful, compliant way and enable kind of net new use cases that couldn't have been built on, let's say, a Fiserv or a Tsys or someone's super legacy. You know, if you take a step back, these companies are like built in a previous era where like the job to be done was like, hey, I'm XYZ Big Bank, and I want to ship a million pieces of plastic at a really, really efficient, low cost to, you know, tons of people around the country, right? We're now in a time and age where a lot more of the innovation is around like, hey, like we know you can ship plastic, but like what is the innovation on top of the plastic? What is the software and contextual component where you can actually like control like when this card gets approved, how much money gets loaded on the card in basically real time? I think we're just starting to see that unlock happen where it's like these spend management products out there more broadly, they're exciting, not because like, hey, like, you know, it's just another card with similar rewards as like the status quo, but it's like, hey, it's actually embedded in the software. And there's actually kind of like workflow innovations that save people time, make companies more efficient. That's sort of the really exciting aspect of this to me versus like, hey, like, you know, we're in a zero sum game of like taking volume from like someone else and kind of moving bits and bytes around. When you think about that unlock that exists, is that a limitation of like, it's just fintech companies would really struggle to work with these legacy processors and the sort of speed of data that they provide or whatever, like it's just a sort of technical limitation? Or is there literally some kind of functional capability you've built that didn't exist before and is enabling these use cases where it just like it wouldn't have been economically feasible or help me understand better, like what that real unlock was for you guys in in those new use cases? It's really about the customer type that you're building for, the archetype. There are definitely like functionality gaps and cost. Those are probably the two biggest, I'd say. If you're building core processing for top 10 you know, financial services companies or you know, FIs, the time to market, the cost like is just like dramatically different, right? Versus a series A, B, C, whatever company that's trying to move quickly and build something innovative. You know, you're talking like weeks on sort of the, you know, startup side, whereas like you're talking like probably at best, like, you know, multiple years on the FI side. To speak to kind of the specific product gaps, the biggest thing, the shift for us has been like, 
the ability to be in the authorization flow. So like when you swipe that card, you know, at a Starbucks or whatever, a coffee shop, it gets routed to the network. And then we're able to put the fintech company or a software company in that flow and to, you know, sort of very quickly decide on, hey, like, do we want to accept or reject that transaction? And to kind of make that really accessible and easy for people is a sort of non-trivial effort. And that I would say is, something that we've seen from the overwhelming like vast majority of our customers is treated effectively as a first class offering where it's like you have like monitoring 24/7 uptime all that stuff right whereas like I think you're starting to see some incumbents try to do that but like it's hard when you're doing like massive massive scale and most of your customers aren't demanding that I really think about it as like who's the ideal customer for each company and for us it's like Companies that really are trying to push the boundaries from a technology perspective around like what's possible. Well, I think this is a good segue to step back a little bit in your guys' own experience of, of sort of seeing this yourself and building for this. And it reminded me, because as I was thinking about your story, I remember the first time that I saw some demos for things like Divi or Ramp to set up for a business to be able to set up like a virtual card that you could control budget items for, hey, you're going to an event some conference, we can create a little budget in a virtual card, it'll limit it, we can lock it, whatever. I remember seeing that and thinking, man, I wish I could get one of those for my personal budget to be able to create cards for my bills and make sure things don't go over or whatever. And then I remember the first time I saw a privacy.com demo, which is what you guys is kind of original product. So I would love to like take that as an example, because I love the story of kind of how you guys set out to solve a problem and then had to build for yourselves. So maybe walk us through that story of like the original sort of vision of the company, how you went through that building journey and how it's informed where you're focused today. The story actually starts in 2014. Three co-founders, myself, Jason, David, had a basically an idea for building privacy.com, which we originally conceived as, hey, like a broad suite of tools to help you stay safe online, hence the name privacy.com. And we started with a cards product and, you know, being sort of naive 25-year-olds at the time, we were like, this is going to take us six months. We'll launch this and then we'll kind of move on to the, the next offering in the suite. Basically, what we discovered in the process was like we launched the offering. It took us longer than we expected. And also, as we scaled on a legacy infrastructure provider, even though the product technically worked, it was kind of breaking in really weird ways we didn't anticipate at all. And it was really largely because like, you know, it was built for this use case of plastic cards in the hands of consumers relatively static spend controls. Maybe you could update them hourly or you could cash cards. So like fundamentally that infrastructure just wasn't built for like this digital first use case that we had in mind with privacy.com, which to your point is like basically almost like Brex Ramp or Divi except for your personal life. We basically decided, hey, we have to rebuild our infrastructure or this company is going to die. Again, being kind of naive 25 year olds, we thought this would take maybe six or 12 months. Fast forward about five years, which is about how long it ended up taking us really to kind of build our own processing in-house and get it to a reasonable scale. We looked around and realized that, hey, like we actually have a pretty unique point of view on the market as well as a pretty unique asset opportunity to kind of like make a difference. And so we uh, decided to transform the business and basically pivoted from a like roughly 20-person, really lean and mean team 
to scaling up, raising about $100 million in financing to kind of go after this payments infrastructure opportunity. But this idea and notion that we're going to do things a little bit differently than the folks that had been just doing the same thing effectively for the past, you know, 20, 30 years. Two things I love. Number one, I think there is a broad swath of the world that has been built by sort of these naive young people, 25-year-olds, whatever, who think they can build something in six months, but are willing to commit to the four or five years that it actually takes to build something impressive. And then the second thing is I love looking for these examples of where it almost feels like a product forced itself into existence. Like there was so much demand and so much pull. And I think you've shared the story before where somebody one developer kind of reverse engineered privacy.com's mobile application to figure out how this API would had worked for you guys. And you can kind of just feel this like pull of how much demand there is for that. That is super interesting. It kind of speaks volumes to the need for something like what Lithic is today. I think in terms of like laying out where you are as a product, kind of the value they create, I think that makes a lot of sense. As far as like taking that one step further into how exactly does the business model work, right? You're obviously creating value uh, both like for some of these legacy use cases, but also these new use cases where maybe this is a function that a company had never thought about before, right? Being able to issue cards as part of their business model and now their business model is changing as well. So how have you guys thought about your own business model and identifying the value you're creating and, and really trying to capture some of that value. One thing that we uh, that really bugged us about legacy providers is like starting out. It was like really really hard to understand the pricing. There would be like all sorts of random pricing and like fees for things that like we didn't have any idea why they were being charged or how to control our cost. So for us, like one thing we decided to do differently starting out was like, hey, like, you know, if we're the program manager and like we're trying to help companies get started, we're going to go with like a really simple pricing that's aligned with the customer. And so we'll do a percentage share of sort of the interchange, you know, interchange occurs when you swipe a card, the merchant pays that that fee. We participate in sort of a percentage of that transaction alongside the fintech company that's issuing the card. We wanted to just keep it really simple. So it's sort of interchange share, you know, as well as the SaaS fee that's super easy to model. Now, one learning we had was like, as we started moving into the mid-market and into customers that, you know, wanted more control, they actually wanted more of that complexity. And so there's a kind of a way to evolve. Like one thing we've had to do is kind of evolve our pricing model to fit that, like, mid-market customer where like they want the ability to kind of you know toggle certain fees and like decide hey like do i want to pay for this like network usage fee or fraud fee or whatever it may be those are kind of the two models we have one which is kind of a just a straight interchange share another that's like kind of a more usage-based model that's a little more complex but we think hopefully still like simpler and easier to understand than some of our uh, incumbent competitors when you think about there are different customer sizes, I think Marketa has typically like not very many customers and most of their customers are actually quite large. It sounds like to your point, you're kind of enabling this sort of mid-market, but is there a specific strategy in how you think about like, hey, we really want to ex- almost exclusively focus on customers of this size or of this volume of spend? Or is it like we would address anybody, but we, we kind of have built for this use case? Like, how do you think about your ideal customer profile? We think of our ideal customer as like a customer that is trying to build something new and innovative and has that pressure to like work with a best in class provider that kind of enables them to unlock new use cases. 
And so that's like where like our best customers tend to be and where we have the strongest fit. If you're looking for like, hey, like I just want someone to just do it all for me out of the box in a sort of easy to use package that abstracts away everything from me, we tend to not be the best fit for use cases like that. The work we've done in kind of recent quarters has been really kind of aligning the like, hey, like, who are we for? We're like, we're for that customer that cares about control, that cares about scalability, that cares about like kind of a long-term partner. That may mean that we work with certain customers later in their life cycle where it's totally understandable. You want to launch quickly. You want something that's totally out of the box and abstracts away the compliance, bank relations, and all that stuff from you from day one. As you scale, you may find that, hey, like that solution doesn't work for me perfectly. And so for those types of customers, we tend to enter like a little bit later, sort of mid-market in the life cycle. That said, there are use cases where we're willing to kind of help folks get started relatively quickly out of the box, but it's a pretty uh, tightly defined scope of use cases, just given kind of like where we're strongest at and kind of where we see the market. So and then how does that translate into traction in terms of, you know, whatever you're willing to share, but whether it's, yeah, I think you've in the past, you've shared number of cards you've issued or the number of customers you have or how much revenue you've generated. How do you think about what that translates into? Our North Star uh, metric is really around transaction volume. And that's a metric that for us, like year over year has like continued to grow by triple digit percentage you kind of have to take a bit of a portfolio approach. And we've definitely seen like consolidation or um, regretted churn um, due to the kind of the the current funding environment. But like net net year over year, we continue to see like really, really robust triple digit percentage year over year growth on the transaction volume side. And part that's due to just strong growth from our core debit offering, but also like new products that we've launched, you know, for example, on the charge card side and, Recently, we've launched like ACH and accounts, um, sort of new products, just unlocking more and more of the TAM. And so when you think about that in terms of the customers you have, and I want to talk about the sort of future in the next few years and the things you're excited about or that you're cautious about. But before I do that, like stepping into the experience that you've had, you mentioned taking this kind of portfolio approach, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it. Again, it goes back to this point I've made a couple of times now that like you guys have a really interesting seat in the sort of fintech landscape. We're not every, a lot of times people are building a very specific solution for a very specific customer. You guys kind of have this purview of a lot of what's going on. And so I'm curious what, when you think about the fintechs you've worked with who have seen this opportunity to make card issuing a part of their business and have kind of executed on it, when you think about the ones who have been most successful at that, right, whether it's like driving growth or adoption or whatever, what are some of the kind of takeaways you have from fintechs that have been most successful and for folks that might be thinking about working with you, you know, the kind of advice that you have for them of how to be successful in setting up that program? I think there's a couple of things. And part of this is probably just kind of selection bias with like companies that we tend to work with. But the ones that tend to be the most successful that I that we've seen tend to have a couple of traits. They really do tend to care about kind of the details that like fine grained control may be like, hey, like, you know, I want to have a direct relationship with the bank or hey, like, I care about the card design because that's an extension of my brand. That's like one thing that we've kind of noticed. Like 
the best companies really tend to sweat the details. Like at the right level, there's a point in time where like that just means like you're going to be super, super slow to market. And so there's, there's a balance there of like a bouncing time to market plus like, you know, kind of long term like iteration and commitment to, to getting product quality right. Another thing that we've seen is like, There's still a lot of opportunity in building products that are like tightly focused on narrow niches that may on the surface seem a little bit too narrow, but in practice, you can go really deep on and be hyper verticalized and just basically like completely own a category by building like the best end-to-end product for, for that category. You know, I think in some ways, like Chime was actually a pretty good example of this early on. They picked a really, really big segment and kind of really built a bespoke offering for that segment. I think the days of like, hey, like we're just going to do what Chase does, except like better for like mass affluent segment. That's kind of a tough proposition. The very best companies we see have just like almost like a painfully tight uh, focus on ICP. And that may allow you to innovate on like capital requirements or statementing. Um, it may allow you to innovate at the software level to build like kind of workflows for that customer. It may allow you to invest in community. But like in general, like having that super tightly defined voice and who you're for tends to probably more than anything be be an indicator of success in uh, our admittedly limited experience. It's interesting where it's still early days, but a lot of those things you can look back and say, hey, these have kind of been the most successful. And then over time, you can say, how does that translate into long-term success uh, as you continue to provide the infrastructure for that? So puts you in a really interesting position, which also makes it pretty exciting to think about the future and, and what you can do going forward. Before we get into the sort of opportunities that exist, it's also interesting to think about what are the obstacles, the potential obstacles that might arise. And so as you think about over the next, you know, call it three, four or five years, whatever, if you were to get there into the future and, and see that sort of Lithic has not been as successful as you would have liked, what do you think are the obstacles that, you know, kind of these things that keep you up at night or the things you're very cautious of as you go forward? One of the toughest challenges is verticalizing the business at the right point in time, a lot of fintech infra companies, us included, started out relatively horizontally focused. We still internally at times think of ourselves as like kind of building like Lego pieces and building blocks to allow entrepreneurs, operators, companies looking to build something new to kind of put together these Lego pieces. Lends itself to a very horizontal go-to-market approach. And that's been a really good way to scale the business very, very quickly in the first, you know, call it three years or so. We're at a point in time in the company where we're starting to see like different, you know, amounts of pull and like really kind of having to pick our spots and like sort of specific, more specific verticals and kind of segmentation, especially as we think about like a lot of the folks coming in were like more early adopters putting together the puzzle pieces together themselves. And as we kind of think about like, you know, crossing that chasm and like going more mainstream, especially in certain verticals, the need to kind of like be disciplined about which segments we lean into is becoming like more and more apparent, I'd say. And I think this is something that like a lot of fintech uh, infra companies kind of struggle with of like, hey, like I don't want to turn away business, but at the same time, like if I'm not leaning into the right verticals, it feels hard to differentiate or like it feels hard to like start that conversation with the customer around like education around use case and product and you know how we fit into their business needs. 
And when you think about how that translates into the opportunities for you, right? Because to your point, like that focus is pretty critical in not getting torn in a million different pieces and in directions. But so how that translates into the key opportunities for you, is it kind of more of the same doubling down on what you've done and kind of these verticals that are working? Or do you see any set of step function changes in your business over time as you scale that you have to take on as you get larger or anything like that? The sort of short answer is in the near term, it's kind of continuing to double down on the core processing capabilities that we have in the U.S. and like continuing to kind of expand the type of data that we offer customers, upping the reliability and like just you know investing in like kind of more integrations with more uh, bank partners. One thing that we are starting to think about is like, hey, like what is a more comprehensive solution look like? What are the other kind of pain points that our customers have? And that can come in a bunch of different sizes and shapes. It could be like international, like businesses are increasingly like global now, like we're a largely US focused infrastructure play. You know, it could be more segments in the US. Um, so that is something that very much we're kind of being thoughtful about sequencing. And I do think that's like one of the you know biggest risks for us, risks for us as we think about like hey like focus is super important. But at the same time, like the industry that we play in, you kind of have to lay some investments like quite early on with the expectation that hey like this may not this this should yield you know multi hundred millions in net revenue in five years, so that you know you get that kind of nice compounding as the business matures. I think that makes sense. It is very much, it feels like, you know, you guys did a lot of the hard work over the course of four or five years to build a product that can compound. And now it's a function of just letting that happen and letting sort of enable a growing pool of use cases and and to see that growth. And maybe a good place to, to sort of end, because as I think about the sort of future for fintech, one of the things that I've been fairly surprised by is I feel like as we've gone through this sort of current macroeconomic correction and you look at the public markets and how tech companies have been viewed and especially businesses that are still not profitable, it feels like there are a lot of fintech companies that have been pretty punished in the public markets, right? There's a lot of folks that like don't want to go public. There's you know business model questions that people have, what have you. And so it feels like fintech, as powerful as it has been in enabling people to get access to different financial services, people are not catching the vision in the public markets, whatever it might be. Again, from the vantage point that you have, as you think about all the different things that are happening in fintech, what is the thing that you look at and say, you know, the area of fintech that I think is really interesting or exciting, that I'm really keeping an eye on, maybe hopefully that Lithic is empowering, what kind of comes to mind that you're excited about in fintech? So many different ways to answer it. Definitely not a good public markets investor. So it's hard to say like kind of why fintech valuations are where where they are now. I would say the thing that has me like kind of the most excited is like we've been in this point in time or era where like capital was relatively cheap. And because of that, like us included, it was possible to build like kind of a next generation payments or fintech infra companies. And I would argue that if that's the case, and we've done this, and many other companies have have also kind of taken advantage of the environment and raised the capital to kind of invest like large amounts in R&D in kind of building next generation platforms. I think what will be really exciting is in many ways to just kind of see like what comes of it. Like, and the question mark maybe is like, Proving out like better product, more tailored distribution or more tailored offerings really kind of do win out in the long term 
from my like point of view, like logically, like it just seems like if you have a product that's more bespoke for like a certain segment and so large enough offering, it feels like it it should win out. But again, I'm I'm also not a a very good private investor, which is you know probably why I'm a founder here. So that's to me the most exciting thing. It's like we've like funded all these interesting next generation infra companies that are doing things a little differently. And it's like what comes of it. Well, again, I think like your investment portfolio is the customers, right? Again, you get to build it in a very unique way. You get to build sort of a basket of companies that are that are offering this stuff. But I agree with you that I think if I were to step back and take kind of one key theme away from our conversation, it really is this idea that the more robust this new age fintech infrastructure that you're talking about is, the more real TAM expansion there is, right? There are people who can build financial services and, and different fintech products that we couldn't have built on the sort of legacy stuff that was built in the 60s and 70s or whatever. So I think it's going to be pretty compelling to watch. Ultimately, like the best thing is, at the end of the day, the consumer wins, right? Like more competition and, you know, better products, like driving down the cost of like providing these services. Um, it's consumers, businesses, and customers that ultimately went out however the world shakes out well Bo thank you so much for doing this with me it was super fun to not only get to unpack the space but also the company and the history of what you guys have built and excited to watch you guys continue to build up that portfolio thanks for having me Thanks for listening to Contrary Research Radio. If you want to hear or read more from us, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast player or visit us at research.contrary.com. 